This morning we will be taking a look at a passage in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there now. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, presumably in Rome around 60 AD. He was in prison for preaching the gospel, and while there he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and most likely the surrounding churches in Asia as well. The church there was one that Paul himself had helped to set up. We see in Acts 19, uh, Paul stays there for at least two years preaching the gospel and teaching the people there. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul lays out our reconciliation to God in Christ and our response in living out our faith because of our unity with Christ. This morning, we will focus mainly on Paul's explanation of regeneration of Christians, but we'll end up taking a look at the call for holy living in Christ and see how our reconciliation leads us to our walk in faith with the Lord. Let me read for us the passage this morning, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church, Greenbelt Baptist, Lord. We ask this morning that... You would open our eyes and our ears by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to allow us to hear your word this morning and allow it to affect our hearts and sanctify us, Lord. God, I ask that you allow me to speak this morning clearly and boldly the truth of your gospel and that only your truth we would, we would keep from this message this morning, Lord. So prepare us now and bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a hefty passage, packed with at least seven or so sermons and several theological implications. So my goal when preparing for this morning was for us to take a look at Paul's main ideas in this passage and understand the purpose for his writing it. There is a chance there may be some lingering question or thought you had that I may not tie up in a neat little bow. It's likely, actually. They would be great questions for the uh, sermon discussion on Tuesday nights. Uh, that Will is leading right here in the church. 
or I would love to discuss them with you later. But for this morning, we will take a wide-angle view of verses 1 through 10 as a whole. If you have been here with us the last several weeks, you may already know that we have stepped away for a moment from our typical chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse preaching style through entire books of the Bible. And although that is the preferred style of preaching by the elders here at Greenbelt Baptist, and my preference as well, it can be a good thing to take a short break and focus on a particular topic. And so the elders have been preaching recently through a series entitled, But God. Our passage this morning is a continuation of the But God series, and you may have caught it as I read the passage a moment ago. There in the beginning of verse 4, But God made us alive together with Christ. My prayer for this morning is that we will clearly see God's action in salvation. How God alone makes dead men come to life in a very real way. This is the very heart of the gospel. Paul lays out for us in this passage the mechanics of our salvation. And it's truly gospel good news. But before we can take a look and hear of this good news, we must understand why it's good news. Good news only makes sense in light of bad news. So I think it would be smart to start off, as Paul has in the passage, with the deadness of men. Let's read again together verses 1 through 3 and see how Paul tells us about the natural state of man. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. First, I think it would be wise for us to remember who Paul is speaking to here. He has written here a letter to the church, to a body of fellow believers, saints set apart for the purpose of God, Paul has actually just finished in chapter 1 telling them of their election and forgiveness, their adoptions as sons of God, and how they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And here, just a a few short verses away, he reminds them of the terrible place they have come from. He starts out here in verse 1, And you were dead. Remember back in Genesis when God commands Adam, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of that tree... You will surely die. Then what does Adam do? He eats of the tree that God has commanded him not to, bringing the curse of death upon himself, creation, and all mankind, and he becomes immediately spiritually dead. This death, according to Romans 5, spread to all men. And so we see here in Ephesians 2.1, we are also dead in our trespasses and sins, just like Adam and just like the Ephesians. Look here with me how this spiritual death has spread throughout all aspects of our lives. In verse 2, we walked in our sins following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. This prince here is referring to Satan. Also in verse 2, there is a spirit at work in us and we are referred to as sons of disobedience. In verse 3, we lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires or acted out the desires of our mind and our body. And by our very nature, we're children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This church is the doctrine of total depravity. There we were, walking, following, being worked in by this culture of disobedience, living in and carrying out our sinful desires. 
There is, by our human nature, nothing good in us. Not only that, there is evil in us. We would sin and we would love that sin. And we were encouraged by the world and Satan and our flesh to continue in sin. According to Romans 5.10, we are all born enemies of God. We hate God. We are slaves to sin, but we love that sin. And we want nothing else but to sin. And as we see here back in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we are rightly called children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We find ourselves under the righteous judgment of God. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are not in Christ, if you do not know him and trust him for the payment of the penalty of your own sins, have you ever considered yourself to be dead, spiritually dead, and a child of wrath, God's wrath? If you haven't this morning, right now you ought to. This is how the Bible describes unbelievers, those who are not found in Christ. It's a big question. You see the problem? The biggest problem that man has is their own sin and God's wrath against it. Consider what this passage that Paul has left us means about you and your position before God. As a bit of a side note, all of mankind is lumped together here by Paul as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. This wrath is the just wrath of God. That all sin deserves. But interestingly, according to the modern culture today, most people assume we are all children of God. All of mankind. And we are not under wrath, but under forgiveness of God. And because we do good things most of the time and we aren't as bad as this other guy we know. However, according to the Bible, this is not the case. Sure, all human beings are created in the image of God. And we are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And there is quite literally one human race, yes. And so people say we are children of God. But this is not the way the Bible refers to true adopted children of God. The Bible is clear. No man will be saved by works of the law. And certainly not by comparing ourselves to other sinners. In the natural state, we are sinners separated from God. Children of wrath. And we have no part in the inheritance of the Father. As we go through the rest of this passage, keep this in mind, and we will see what it looks like to be sons or daughters adopted into the household of the Lord. While working through the text and studying the passage, I find myself here wanting to use a kind of gruesome analogy. But I put it off thinking it may be a little odd or out of place. I continued to study and read commentary on the passage, and I came across the great James and Montgomery Boyce quoting the exact same analogy that I wanted to use here. He had heard it used by Martin Lloyd-Jones when speaking on the same topic, deadness of man. So since these great heroes of mine have used in their sermon the same analogy, I have taken a little more confidence this morning in using it here. This picture that Paul gives us is an odd one. Dead men walking and talking and acting and living completely oblivious to their deadness. It reminds me of our, our modern day fictional zombies. I'm not particularly a fan of the horror genre, but this idea of dead beings who don't know they're dead and yet still walk around not living 
and they are decaying and their bodies are falling apart, wanting nothing else but to attack the living. And at the same time, they are slaves to this desire. They want to do this disgusting work of attacking the living. They like it. But at the same time, they are slaves to it. It is a grotesque picture for sure. But I wonder if this is not the way we look to the Lord while in our sin. If we too had spiritual eyes and perhaps we could see droves of people walking around dead and unaware. Slaves to their own sin, but at the same time desiring nothing else but their sin. Do you see what Paul says here in verse 1? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, we have seen now the natural state of man. And honestly, at this point in the passage, is a bleak or hopeless situation. I hope we can feel that, the weight of our sinfulness apart from Christ, our hopelessness as lost sinners... And it is at that very moment in our minds when Paul hits us with the glorious gospel. We will see here the purpose of the entire sermon series we are on in verse 4. But God made us alive together with Christ. Apart from God's decision to act, there would be no life. We would be left wallowing in our sin, hopeless and dead, spiritually dead. And being found guilty of sinning against a righteous God, we would be facing a permanent and eternal death. But God reached out his hand from heaven and created again. Just like the Lord had promised in Ezekiel 36, he has replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. He has created in us a new spirit. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice here in Ephesians how Paul contrasts dead in trespasses and sins in verse 1. To alive together with Christ in verse 5. And being of this, in the beginning of this passage, we will see sinners. We, I'm sorry, excuse me. In the beginning of this passage, we see nothing of God. We see sinners, the world, our flesh. We even see the action of Satan. But we do not see God. Do you see the point Paul is making here? Apart from the action of God in this world, there is only death. But God, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, haters of God, wanting nothing to do with him, he performs an absolute miracle. He alone removes the blinders from our eyes. He unplugs our ears and transforms dead men into spiritually living, breathing saints. This is what it means to be born again. Remember what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responds with a good question here. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus goes on to explain this new birth or regeneration, as is often referred to, is of the Spirit of God. It is a complete work of God. Nicodemus is right. Just as a man could not bore himself the first time, he certainly cannot do it a second Dead men do not save themselves. They are dead. They do nothing except for stay dead. So here, starting in verse 4, we see this. But God action being the salvation of sinners, their spiritual resurrection. Look with me here, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Paul tells us here in verse 4 a few reasons why God has acted in this miraculous way. He gives us these two reasons. God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. The Lord has great love for his people. The true children of God. It is a special or specific love. A sacrificial love. A love that allowed God to send his own son, Jesus Christ, to do something for his people that they could not do on their own. That is, pay the penalty for the forgiveness of their sins to satisfy the just wrath of God. So being sinless, Jesus took on the sin of his people and the wrath of God for those sins. So we might be blameless before God. This is truly an amazing love. And out of this love flowed mercy from God. Whenever we think about God's mercy or grace, I think it's a good idea to stop for a second and clearly think about the difference between the two. Sometimes I will lump them together in my mind as one thing, God's mercy and grace together. But they're different things. Mercy is withholding a penalty or a punishment that is deserved. And grace is given a gift that is not deserved. It is one thing for a father and mother to withhold a deserved spanking from their child because of the great love that they have for them. It is quite another to withhold the paddling and then to lavish the child with the greatest gifts you have. This is similar to what God has done for his people, but on an infinitely larger scale. The Lord is merciful beyond compare, withholding judgment that we all deserve because he loves us. And he graciously has saved his church, even now raising us up with him and seating us with him, with Christ in the heavenly places, with Christ Jesus. Paul exclaims here in the middle of his thought in verse 6, by grace you have been saved. What an amazingly gracious God to give such a gift to his enemies. Then in verse 7, Paul gives us this future reason for this miracle God has worked in the spiritual resurrection of his people. Look with me there in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Lord is putting on display his unfathomable graciousness. He is lavishing us with grace and kindness that has never and will never be seen anywhere else in creation apart from God. It says here in verse 7, They are immeasurable riches. We have nothing to compare them to. And even though we have begun to experience it now, it is the promise for an age to come, a future promise. We cannot fully comprehend the glory and the greatness of the Lord, but we will spend an eternity trying to. How do we inherit these great riches from the Lord? It is only through Christ Jesus... Our unity with Christ makes us fellow heirs of the promise. In Romans 8.1, Paul says, There is therefore now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our forgiveness is because we are found in Jesus. Then Thomas, uh, excuse me, Jesus tells Thomas in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All of the blessings we've received in God come from our union with Christ. Having Christ is the blessing. There is no other way to have reconciliation with God. Jesus didn't say, I am one of the ways. He said, I am the way. 
If you are here this morning visiting with us and you do not know Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in him for the salvation of your soul, please hear me now. The Bible, the living and active word of God, the completed revelation of God is clear on the good news of the gospel. It tells us, as we have seen this morning, that all men and women are sinners. We are condemned justly under the law of God, and no man will ever be saved by his own works or abilities to please God. There is no amount of effort or good deed that a person can do to take away his sin, and our situation is hopeless. But God, the Father, sent his Son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to live a sinless life, He was crucified on the cross, and on that cross he took on the sins of all those whom the Father had given to him. And the Bible, again, is clear here. If you hear this good news of Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sin and believe in him, and that his sacrifice is sufficient for the payment of the penalty of your sins, you will turn from following the world, your flesh, and Satan, and you will have been made alive. So then I plead with you today, if you are hearing this for the first time or the 700th time, the call of the gospel is the same. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and follow him today. He is the only way to have reconciliation with God. Well, friends, there are a few more thoughts Paul leaves us with in this passage. And the next is that God alone has done this work of our salvation. Look down there at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. This is the true grace of God. That while you hated God, he saved you apart from anything you have done. If you are a Christian today, if you have completely trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins... I tell you that you have contributed nothing to your own salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Some of you have, may have already thought of Jesus' friend Lazarus, who became ill while Jesus and the disciples were off preaching. And when Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus was dead. He had already been wrapped and laid in the tomb. And Jesus came and said, open the tomb. But Lazarus' sister said, Jesus, I don't know if you want to do that. The body probably already smells because he's been dead for a few days. They listen to Jesus anyway, and they open the tomb. And Jesus calls out to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. Wrapped up like a mummy, he rises from the dead and walks out of the tomb by the command of God. And some of us skeptics may say, you know, He was only dead a few days, so maybe he wasn't actually dead. Maybe he was sick and he had a really slow heart rate and they didn't really have the technology at the time to say, yeah, he's dead. Okay, I hear you. In that case, let's turn our attention to Ezekiel 37, the passage that was read already earlier for us this morning. Did you pay attention to it? It's another amazing passage. God takes Ezekiel the prophet out to the valley, and the valley was full of dry bones. And God asks Ezekiel, Can these bones live? I don't think at this point there can be any mistake that these dried up bones are all the way dead. And so Ezekiel answers, Lord God, you know. At that time, the the prophets were the mouthpiece of God on earth. They spoke directly for God to the people. 
So God has Ezekiel prophesy to the dead, dry, lifeless bones. And he says, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And the bones start to rattle and they stand up. They take on flesh and skin and Ezekiel prophesies to them to have breath and live. And they do. So the dead, dry bones stand on their feet with flesh and breath in their lungs and live. And the Bible says they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Wow. Both of these resurrection passages show us an amazing picture. We see the word of the Lord go out to dead people and make them alive. Jesus didn't perform CPR on Lazarus. He didn't bring him back from cardiac arrest. God didn't tell Ezekiel to get some glue and gather some bandages and start gathering together the bones that looked like they would fit together. No. The word of the Lord goes out to dead people. And by the power of the Spirit of God, dead men come to life. An absolute miracle. Both of these passages are pictures of exactly what happens back in Ephesians 2. Dead men made alive by God. They are pictures or examples of what God does to his people. And at the end of these passages, could you imagine Lazarus or these men from the dry bones to be like, Hey, did you guys see how I did that? I brought myself back from, to life. No, because they were dead. And dead men cannot make themselves alive. It takes a miracle. Lazarus had no room to boast in this. He would be a fool to go around telling his friends what a great thing he had done. And Paul tells us to the Ephesians and us the exact same thing. This is a gift of God. Not your own doing, so no man can boast. As Christians, we say, well, what should we do now? Okay, I was a sinner. Totally depraved, hating God. Not wanting anything to do with him. And by his grace, he comes down and causes me to hear his word, know its truth, and repent and be healed. I got it. But now what? What does a former rebel turn a servant of God to do now? In verse 10, Paul addresses this question. Look with me there. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, Christians... The adopted sons and daughters of God are his workmanship. We are his handiwork. Our being made alive uh, in Christ Jesus is the work of God. We, We see here that we are saved by works, God's works. Our work has contributed nothing. We are the clay to the potter. We are the wood to the carver. We are not the worker in regeneration, but the substance to be worked on. God is the worker, and he has created saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mold or the stencil. By him we are made alive and given faith. We are made into new creations for good works. Do you see that little switch there? We were not the workers. God is. And by his work we have been transformed into new creations to be workers. To do the good works that God had prepared beforehand for his people, for his own glory. This, Christians, is where, again, we need to respond. Do you see our walking in good works as a reflection of our salvation? 
see how Paul has clearly contrasted man's walking as evidence in his spiritual state. Back in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then here in verse 10, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, in which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We were made alive for the purpose of walking in good works. So let's walk in them. Well, what are these good works we are supposed to be walking in? Paul goes on throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians telling us how to walk in good works, mainly in chapters 4 and 6, 4 through 6, excuse me. I would highly recommend you read through the entire book and see how this theme plays out. It is a short book, maybe an hour read or so if you go through it slowly. But this morning, I would like us to take a a quick look at a few passages in Ephesians and get a feel for what Paul is getting at. Turn with me to chapter 4, verse 1, just a few pages away. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And look across at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering of sacrifice to God. Do you see how Paul continues this idea of walking in works? Later in the letter is a very well-known section where Paul addresses husbands and wives. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. And he goes on, children, obey your parents, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I think what we see Paul laying out for us is not some extraordinary work that we are to be searching for. Not some level of good works that we are trying to attain, but ordinary living, holy and set apart for the glory of the Lord. We see patience and gentleness and humility bearing with one another in love, that's forgiveness, all towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should be imitators of God as his children, loving sacrificially as Christ loved us. We are called to be good husbands and good wives, obedient children and patient and fair parents, all for the glory of God, doing and walking in the good works he had planned for us beforehand. Well, there is one more application that I want us to think about this morning. How should we feel towards God after reading this passage? What does it cause us to do? I think there's a simple answer, and it happens to be the reason we are all here today. That is, worship the Lord God. Paul has written this letter to the church, to believers, and he spends his time here explaining to them how it is they have come to this point. He lets them know of their sinfulness and their inability, and he contrasts that with God's sovereignty and his infinite ability. We say then that God saves his people from destruction that we deserve, And gives us the greatest gift ever given, that is Jesus Christ. What else can we do but fall on our knees and worship this holy God, our Savior and Redeemer? 
as we go on the rest of this afternoon and the rest of the week and the rest of our lives even, doing the good works that the Lord has for us, we ought to do them joyfully and worshipfully unto the Lord. Knowing that it is by his sovereign choice alone that we are made alive. And our response of obedience in living is worshiping. Worshiping is giving something reverence, adoration, or honor. So when we live walking in good works, as Paul puts it, we are worshiping the Lord. It is so easy for us to set up idols because as soon as we stop focusing on God and his word and start to lean on something else more than God, we have set it higher than the Lord in our lives and begun to worship that thing. Our job, our children, money, even our spouse, these are all good things, but we should have them and be stewards of them in the light of what God has done for us. We should view all of these things through the lens of the triune God and what he has done. And we will then worship rightly. Worship is the very purpose of our creation. And the Lord has called us back to it and out of our sin. Let's pray.